the responsible center in American politics is gone, and that's quite regrettable. The uh, extent to which our, our politics has become dysfunctional from the standpoint of really not getting the, taken care of the people's business. Hi everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. That voice was James Baker, former chief of staff under Presidents Reagan and Bush Sr., and he was a former U.S. Secretary of State. He mourns the state of affairs in Washington where political parties are at war. And under Trump, the war became a violent street fight at the Capitol. Because Trump didn't work well with his own Republican Party, let alone the Democrats. And Trump is gone. President Joe Biden knows how to bridge political differences, and there is hope in Washington. He can get the nation back on track. But the challenges are big. On this backstory, we talk to the author of a new book on James Baker, titled The Man Who Ran Washington. And we talk about the man who almost ran it into the ground, Donald Trump, and the challenges ahead for Joe Biden and the media. All right, to understand what is going on in Washington or understand it as best as we can, let's talk to Peter Baker of the New York Times, who has just written a book, The Man Who Ran Washington. And he wrote that with Susan Glasser of The New Yorker. And it's about James Baker III, the former Secretary of State, former White House Chief of Staff and Power Broker. How are you, Peter? I'm good, Dana. How, how are you? You're, you're living in crazy town. We live in a crazy town. <laughs> that was back the phrase. That was the word. It was used by John Kelly, who was President Trump's second chief of staff to describe Washington these days. Crazy town. Wow. And he and he was he was up to his neck in it. And he knew uh, all about it. You know, just watching the impeachment hearings and everything last week, which I, I want to talk to you about. But first of all, on this book, congratulations. Thank you. James Thank you. Baker. I mean, a lot of people who know politics in the US will know him. But a lot of people won't remember him. And I remember him so well because, you know, all of our fates as, as foreign correspondents uh, turned on, on Baker's ability to go through the Middle East uh, and talk to Gorbachev of, of Russia and try to put together this incredible coalition. Um, I guess it was 1990 when Saddam Hussein had gone into Kuwait and put together this coalition uh, to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And you imagine now, uh, in modern political times, anybody trying to do what Baker achieved, um, it, it, you know, in Mission Impossible. No, I think you're right about that. I mean, the coalition that he helped assemble with George H.W. Bush to push Iraq out of Kuwait was unprecedented. They had the Soviets on the same side as the Americans. They had the Syrians and the Egyptians uh, and the Arabs, part of this coalition, they had the Israelis, the quiet part of the coalition, staying out of it to avoid alienating their Arab neighbors, but but going along with what Baker asked them to do, which is to keep out of it as much as they could. They, they had, you know, the Europeans and they had all the people who have fractured so much in these last 25, 30 years, uh, all on the same page. It is hard to imagine that happening today. But I think it's, a, it's one of the reasons we wanted to do this book was because it's the story of Baker himself is so interesting. He had his hands involved in so many interesting things. But it's also a story of Washington and how much has changed. You know, we, we were going to call this book The Man Who Ran Washington When Washington Ran the World, right? Because it was this unique moment at the end of the Cold War when America was supreme and had 
you know, fewer challenges around the world for a small period of time. The title is a little long for the cover, so we didn't go with the full, <laughs> a little the full version. But that is the th- that is the thrust of the book, right? The, the man who ran Washington when Washington ran the world. So Susan Glasser, in one of your interviews, um, said, "Remember, this is a study in power, and power doesn't always look pretty up close." So, what what was the That's ugly right. part of of that power play? Do you think during his time? Well, the ugly part of power from Baker's story is is the acquisition of power, right? So I think Baker's story is the story of the acquisition, exercise, and preservation of power uh, in modern world. And getting power doesn't always look pretty. And in particular, it would be the five presidential campaigns that he ran, some of which got pretty ugly. The 1988 campaign stands out between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis still to this day as one of the ugliest campaigns we've seen in modern times. Bush, who otherwise was a genteel fella, and Baker, who generally was a person who valued uh, you know, uh, civility and, and res- mutual respect, went all out to, you know, to beat Michael Dukakis, this sort of mild-mannered technocratic governor from Massachusetts. They turned him into a flag-hating, Pledge of Allegiance, uh, despising, criminal-coddling, lefty liberal. And so that wasn't a very, you know, pretty moment, I think, in American politics. But what's different is that's what all American politics seems to be these days. Whereas in Baker's time, once the election was over, the election was over and it was time yeah, then to govern. I was just going to say there's some reconciliation at the end of yes. the process, according to, to, to Baker and according to some of the things right. in your book, right? That, that yeah, yeah you fight like hell during the election, but after the election, then you have to come together and try and get things done. Although he does talk, he, he did talk about this great division in Washington and the increasing inability to get anything done. Yeah, it's so different today, right? Back in Baker's era, you did the dirty, grubby things you had to do during elections in order to win. And then you did that in order to govern. And today it seems like the other way around, you know, that you get into office for the purpose of winning the next election that your time as uh, a president or a senator or a congressman is all spent thinking about what you can do during the term you have in order to succeed at the next uh, vote count, rather than using the votes that you've won in order to accomplish something uh, of lasting value. I think the Washington Post wrote about your book, and they were quite flattering about it, and um, deservedly so. But they said Baker played hardball, yet within limits that he didn't seek to challenge the fundamentals of the political system or its institutions the way that President Trump did. What do they mean there? Well, look, you know, we think of Baker for a lot of things. One of them we think of as the Florida recount after the 2000 race. George W. Bush and Al Gore basically came to a virtual tie, and it all came down to Florida, where they were separated by just 357 votes after the first machine recount. And so Baker led Bush's effort through that recount won the, the the battle at the Supreme Court. A lot of Democrats are still bitter about that. And a lot of Democrats think that that was kind of, you know, a dirty pool in some way or another, that the election was somehow- This was uh, the whole you know, hanging chad Hanging chads and all that. But the difference is, I think, actually, what you saw from that to today is how different it really was, because there was a genuine question about who won then, and both sides did fight it out in the courts as vigorously as, as they could. But when it was over, it was over. And both sides accepted the result. You know, Al Gore gave a very gracious concession speech at the end of the day. So I didn't agree with the Supreme Court decision, but George W. Bush is now my president. George W. Bush and Jim Baker and his sides were very gracious toward Gore and the Democrats and say, you know, Bush is going to be the president for all Americans, not just some Americans. And I think that's the difference. They believed in the system. They used it. They fought 
in the system to, to, to prevail. But when it was over, they stood the system up, not try to tear it down. And why did they do that? I mean, do, was, was that a sense of tradition? I mean, obviously, if you're a statesman, you put nation before your political interests or after you fight it out in the in in the appeals in the courts and you say okay let's have a peaceful transition of power but did do you think that they did that out of tradition or do you think they understood the dangers of not doing it i think all of the above tradition right a healthy respect for the system that the system has to have rules in the end you have to have guardrails in the end otherwise it's chaos otherwise it's not really a democracy i think that they believed uh you know that you uh, that there were limits and that you did not cross those limits, whether they were legal limits or just, you know, traditional limits or, you know, normative limits. And I think that they they had that fundamental belief in the system because of how they were raised, when they were raised, the times that they were raised in. And Trump has basically shown that the limits that we thought existed on the presidency and that existed in the democratic system in many ways were advisory rather than mandatory, that they can be, in fact, crossed with impunity and if you have the capacity to win support from your supporters, your base, your backers, uh, you know, it, it's not always easy to stop it. And it, it, yeah. the, the well, that's, that's the scary part of it. That's the scary yeah. part of it, right? Because we always used to go around talking to, you know, people in Russia and other systems right. and say, yeah, but America has, it's just not about goodwill politics at the end of the day that they have decent checks and balances within independent media and independent judiciary. And all of a sudden, all of that just went, it didn't go poof, but you right. could see how fragile it was. I think fragile is the right word. We saw in the last few weeks and months, especially, but maybe even over the last four years and beyond, that the institutions that we thought were immutable in Washington and in, in the United States in general are in fact fragile. They in fact can be broken if that's what happens. Now, you can also take the more optimistic point of view and say, in the end, the system held up, right? In the end, courts looked at what Trump tried to do and say, no, we don't believe that. There's nothing here. This is nonsense. And these were yeah. judges who were Republicans as well as Democrats. But these it, are judges who were appointed by Trump. But as it well turned as those on a threat, by Democrats. right? I mean, you look but at that phone call with Georgia. What if what if he'd say, yeah, okay, I'll find you another, whatever it was, exactly. 11,000 votes. Exactly. Brad Raffensperger acted with, you know, obvious uh, uh, integrity in the face of enormous pressure from the leader of his own party. And what if that happened that he wasn't uh, Brad Raffensperger, but somebody else who didn't have the same uh, strength and courage of conviction or what have you. And you're right. I think we've learned, I think, a lot about that. Now, what do we do about it? I don't know. That's going to be for the, the leadership to decide, if anything. We're in such a fractured moment and such a polarized time that there isn't sort of this larger consensus that we need to fix the system uh, the way there was, say, after Watergate, when the 1974 class came in and people said, let's start some reforms going here. Did he really tell you that he thought Trump was crazy? James Baker? James Baker, he did. Yeah, yeah. See, Trump is the anti-Baker in so many ways, you know, and we uh, we're doing this book before Trump came along. We were, we started this book back in 2013 in the misty days of the Obama era because we also thought Washington was still broken then and partly we thought that Baker's story would help us understand why it was broken even back then. Then Trump comes along. And so all these conversations we're having Baker for the book, you know, often get diverted into conversations about Trump because we were so curious about his views. And Trump is so much the anti-Baker, both in terms of ideology, his version of republicanism is very different than Baker's, but also in terms of like, I think we, did, we just talked about, you know, respect for the system, the, you know, the, the idea that there are limits, the idea that you have a certain degree of integrity and that you have, you work across the aisle and you respect the other side, even if you're competing with them. These are things that are not Trump's, you know, leitmotif, right? But they are Baker's. So why 
in the end, was Baker's Republican Party turning to Donald Trump. We tried to explore that through his eyes. And he said over and over again, right, this guy, I think this guy is nuts. I think this guy is crazy. He told us repeatedly. He had a lot of criticism of him. And yet in the end, he voted for him. So why did he vote for him? Because he says in the end, I'm a Republican, even if my party has left me. And I think that tells you a lot about the modern Republican Party and about America in general right now. It's a tribal moment in America where people stick to their side. Skins and shirts. We, we know which team we're on. We're sticking with our team for the most part. Although the, some of the polls that came out, like the, the ABC uh, poll just came out, said 58% think that Trump should have been convicted. Uh, more than three quarters of the um, Republican Party, though, still you know, sticks with Trump, right? So, yeah, you you still see the tribal, but there are some pretty big fractures and cracks uh, appearing where, you know, 28% blame him for the riot. Um, And, uh, you know, is this the the moment where the party doesn't stick like glue? And there's going to be some people have said there's going to be a holy war inside the party. Well, it's a great question. You know, we had a good story by our, our colleague, Reed Epstein, in today's New York Times, about Adam Kinzinger. Adam Kinzinger is one of the Republicans, members of the House from Illinois, who voted against uh, President Trump, voted to impeach him, and has been a very outspoken critic in in recent weeks in particular. And his own family, 11 members of his own family, signed a letter to him, a two-page handwritten letter to him, basically saying that you're an embarrassment. You joined the devil's army. You know, Trump is a Christian, and you're, you're signed up with the other side, and we basically disown you. And that's how you're right. That's how fractured things are right now in the Republican Party, because literally families are being torn apart over this question of President Trump. And we'll see where it leads. We don't know. I mean, you know, in some ways, people say this looks like the 1850s when you had the emergence of a new political party for the first time. Could it be that we, you know, after 150 years or more of stability in the two party system, see something different emerge? It's possible. It's possible. We'll see. I think for the moment, though, you've got a very, very fractured Republican Party. Yeah, two-party winner-take-all politics, as somebody wrote in in analysis today, said that it's fueling a calamitous zero-sum toxic partnership. That it's really time for the emergence of a third party. But can you tell me, because I'm you're the expert on American politics, why has there never been a real third party run? Well, the system is built uh, to resist it, right? The system is built to protect itself, and it's a two-party. Uh, duopoly and the, and the two-party duopoly has, you know, defends itself through various laws like ballot access laws, like fundraising laws, like you know, all kinds of campaign-related laws that make it really, really hard for another party to emerge. And even when you've had people with great means, like a Ross Perot, come along and create a third party, which existed for two or three cycles, it didn't have the wherewithal beyond money to 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 last beyond the great personality of its leader, right? So that's. You know, to build a party, you need to go beyond the personality of a single individual like a Donald Trump, perhaps, uh, and to build something more more uh, lasting and sustainable. We haven't seen that in the, in American uh, history uh, since the 1850s. You know, even Teddy Roosevelt, as popular as he was, tried to create a new party, the Progressive Party, called the Bull Moose Party. Once again, once he was off the scene, it no longer went anywhere. So the structure uh, mitigates against a third party. It doesn't mean it won't happen. But I don't I don't I wouldn't expect it. And does Trump fade away or does he get tied up in? I mean, give me your prediction. Does he get tied up in maybe uh, criminal investigations? And then, you know, like the the NAACP has announced today that they're going to sue Trump and they're going to they're going to sue Rudolph Giuliani. I mean, he's got a lot of civil actions coming his way. Does he get ground down in the mud or does does that even 
propel him, fuel his desire to run again in 2024 even more so. Yeah, I don't think he's going to fade away entirely. I don't know that that means he ever runs again, but I think he wants to continue to have a place in the system to, to be a voice in the party and to uh, direct things. He particularly, I think, would like to excuse me, take uh, revenge against those Republicans who, in his way, his view, betrayed him if he can in the 2022 midterm elections, for instance, to primary them. That's the verb we use now in Washington. In other words, to mount a primary challenge against Republicans who he thinks are uh, disloyal to him. And it really does tell you about this party because it is about personality as much as anything else. You know, at that rally on the day of the attack on the Capitol, Donald Trump Jr., the president's oldest son, gave a speech and we, he's excoriating establishment Republicans saying, it's not their party anymore. It's the party of Donald Trump. And that's really telling, I think, because that's, you know, a political party isn't supposed to be about one person. It's supposed to be about a set of ideas and a set of interests and a set of constituencies. But they have tried to make it a party of one, a party of one great personality. And that has been successful because he has had such support among many Republicans. But whether that lasts, whether that goes anywhere, I don't know. And you're right to say, to point out the legal issues, because there are all kinds of criminal as well as civil yeah. exposure that the president, former president has right now that could be real problematic for. I sit around and scratch my head a lot as somebody who's worked in media for 40 years. And I watch, you know, this great fragmentation down the rabbit hole to Looneyville and of, you know, the QAnons. And now instead of just in addition to Fox News, now there's now there's even more right-wing cable stations that are popping up and disinformation is, you know, turbocharged, right? And mainstream media is gets so much criticism and comes under the microscope, you know, almost like they somehow breached their oath because they got something maybe that wasn't wasn't completely 100% right. So I'm obviously a main, you know a fan of mainstream media and and of the New York Times and great institutions like that. But do you see any exodus from you know people who are drinking this ridiculous Kool-Aid that in part has been fueled by President Trump and the, the whole fake news movement? Do you, do you is is there any good news on the horizon that way or is is it very hard to return from this now? Well, I think it is hard Sorry to for that question. Wait. No, no, it's a good question. And I think it goes to the heart of what's going on here in some ways. A lot of it is about media. When you and I were growing up, when you and I were starting out in the business, you know, you had the three big networks, you had CNN just starting, you had the big newspapers and ma news magazines, and that was pretty much it. And today, the great, wonderful, amazing benefit of the new information age also has a dark side, right? So the, 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 the proliferation of new media sources on the one hand is great. A marketplace of ideas should be as broad as possible. But it also means that we have fragmented our media in such a way that people you know, stick to their corner of the internet where they feel most comfortable, where their preconceived ideas are reinforced uh, regardless of facts. And I think that that's true on the left and true on the right, especially obviously, as you point out, uh, on the right right now, where Fox is now seen as not conservative enough by some people, which is pretty <laughs> remarkable. I mean, you would you have guessed it. that a year ago? No, of course not. And they, because of that, you have people living right now in very different fact planets. And they don't even start with the same set of facts, right? When, again, when we, you and I start off, we start off with the same set of facts that Walter Cronkite and, and his generation would tell us. And then we would argue about what they meant and what we should do about them, right? But today, we don't even start with the same facts set. We're living in no. completely different universes. Do you feel and that, you I think, is a big problem. Do you, do you feel... In mainstream media, because of Trump's lies and the the spin that 
all of a sudden we all found ourselves in this movie where they were, you know, he would come up with some ridiculous statement and it wasn't a question of the old rules of balance that you and I grew up with was, okay, well, you got the reaction from the Democrats, right? So, but by right. then the damage was already done. So suddenly we we had to reinvent the wheel a little bit in terms of how we did fact checking and reporting. Do you feel that, that left-wing media or mainstream media suddenly found themselves having to be the official opposition to Trump all the time and, and we were pushed in a very uncomfortable corner? Or do you feel that we're still doing balance? Well, I think that was the danger of these last four years. It is our job to speak truth to power. It's our job to fact check. It's our job to provide, you know, real truth to people when people in power are telling them the opposite. And so by doing that and doing that aggressively, which I think is what we decided we had to do our mission, it made us look like we were in the opposition when we're not. And we shouldn't be. And I think that was what Trump wanted. He wanted us to be the opposite. Why does he call us the enemy of the people? Because he wanted to discredit us and make the mainstream media look like political opponents, no different than the Democrats. Well, we're not the same as the Democrats. And now, of course, you're already seeing Democrats complaining when we write things or say things on TV that they don't like Good. about we, Biden. We need, because, we need that, right? Yeah. Because that shows well, exactly. every, we're hated equally. So, Well, you know, exactly. But it doesn't mean that Biden is the same as Trump. We're not going to say, you know, we're not going to play some false equivalence and pretend that Biden is the exact same as Trump. He's not. We're going to, but we're going to cover him aggressively with accountability, because that's what we do. And it will be appropriate and, and propens- you know, proportionate to uh, to this, you know, what he says and does, because that's what we should do. But we were never in the resistance. And that was always the danger is that we would look like we were. And he wanted us to. And so I think that was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that part of it is over. But, you know, the, because people are so polarized, they assume, you know, if you write a tough article about a politician, that must mean you are politically X or Y. And it doesn't, it just means we're journalists. Is there a, re- a final question to you? Are, is there a retreat? Do you feel a, a sea change now in media and its interaction with the White House? Well, look, this is a, a White House filled with people that we've all seen before. Most of these people were in that White House before under Obama. So it's, it's kind of a return to you know, a, a, a more establishment set of people who understand how the game and the rules work at least as they used to work. And so, you know, we ask tough questions. Again, we're getting excoriated on Twitter by our friends on the left, just like we got excoriated by our friends on the right uh, for asking tough questions. And the question becomes, you know, well, how can you ask him that when Trump did this? Okay, well, we covered when Trump did this and we covered it aggressively as we should. It doesn't mean we're not going to also cover President Biden aggressively. Again, that doesn't make Biden the same as Trump. We're not, these are not equivalent. But we will cover him the way he should be covered, as any president should be covered, because otherwise we're falling down on our job. Peter Baker, so generous with your time. You've co-authored the book, The Man Who Ran Washington, about James Baker III, along with Susan Glasser, who co-authored it with you. It's great. Read the book. And uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And that's our backstory on Washington and politics in America. And I'm now publishing a newsletter on Substack.com. DanaLewis.Substack.com. And I try to lead you through some of the big stories of the day and recommend what you can read on the news of the day. Sign up if you like. It's free, as is this podcast. And all I ask is you subscribe and share it. Thanks for listening to Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis, and I'll talk to you again soon.